I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Today, we get to visit with someone who spoke face-to-face with President Dwight Eisenhower. And you know, in the Kevin Bacon world, that puts me only two degrees away from a president of the United States. And that alone, I think, is kind of cool. But what's even more interesting to me is that this also puts me maybe just three degrees of separation away from the world's greatest athlete, Jim Thorpe. And actually, our guest's visit with Eisenhower centered on this very incredible athlete, Jim Thorpe. Apparently, Eisenhower once played on a ball field against Thorpe. And uh, and now I'm very proud to say I'm actually narrowing my own personal distance degree by degree, not only from important people, but also from a fairly popular game, as I've been told. It's called football. My ignorance about football, though, that's a story for another day. Our guest now is Bob Wheeler. He is author of Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. Wheeler is an Emmy Award winner and founder and president of the Jim Thorpe Foundation. Sports Illustrated credits him with primary responsibility for the restoration of Thorpe's Olympic gold medals in the early 1980s, a full 70 years after the 1912 Olympiad, in which Jim Thorpe was actually disgraced by having his medals stripped from him, ostensibly for not being truly an amateur. Uh, We'll hear that story in just a bit. Bob Wheeler has managed public relations for ABC Sports, Fox Sports, and the White House Conference for Children and Youth. He holds degrees in history and education from Syracuse University and New York University. Bob Wheeler, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you, Marcus. It's an honor to uh, speak with you and to talk about Jim Thorpe. This has been a practically a lifelong quest of yours. How many years have you been enthralled with the story of Jim Thorpe? It started when I was 10 years old. My father gave me a book entitled The 100 Greatest Sports Heroes with Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Bobby Jones and Bill Tilden. And I said to my dad, why in this history book, which which I read cover to cover, it was a great book. I said, why is there a Paul Bunyan type figure in here? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, why, why is this person named Jim Thorpe in here? And he says, well, why are you questioning that? And I said, because no one could be a world-class athlete in 22 different sports, including being uh, the intercollegiate dancing champion and he, my father, was a great lover of American history, especially of the American Indian. And he said, no, Jim Thorpe was a real person. That began a lifelong interest and, and, and indeed a quest to uh, restore his honors. The thing about you is you seem to be fairly determined. You seem to have a little tenacity in this. That's a lot of years to be going at this. Marcus, you... you when you're dealing with the racism that was prevalent in the early stages of the 1900s that I was focusing on, um, you had to be tenacious. And later on, dealing with the Olympic hierarchy, it was uh, it was amazing. I I conducted over 200 interviews with Jim Thorpe's contemporaries. One of them was Avery Brundage. And when you mentioned tenacity, the shortest interview I had, I had no appointments with anyone. It was all done hitchhiking, and I would get into town late at night or early in the morning, and no one turned me down. But the shortest interview, uh, talking about tenacity, was with Avery Brundage in Chicago in his office. He was the president for over 40 years of the International Olympic Committee. And I said to Mr. Brundage, I said, why for over 40 years have you resisted the restoration of Jim Thorpe's Olympic honors? And he said, very condescendingly, he said, son, you don't know your law very well, do you? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, ignorance, ignorance is no excuse. Now turn your tape recorder off. And when I, when I talk to youth groups about this encounter, I, I stress that it's important not to return uh, an insult or return uh, something like that you just have to move on. And so I said, thank you, Mr. Brundage. And I think Marcus, something came over him because he called his secretary in and he said, take Bob into the archives and give him, use the word give, anything he wants. Avery was elderly at the time, a multimillionaire, 
And uh, I went into his archives, which uh, was the most pristine environment I've ever seen. Sure enough, there was a file on Jim Thorpe. I was uh, able to, uh, to take the file. They said, you can have it. And in it, Marcus, was a, uh, a photograph that Avery had taken. He was a teammate of Jim's at the 1912 Olympics. He took this photograph on the ship, the two-week voyage from New York to Stockholm, Sweden, where the Olympics were held. It showed Jim leading the training on the ship, which flew in the face of two Pulitzer Prize winners who had said Jim was a drunken Indian and he slept in a hammock the whole way over to the Olympics on the, on the voyage. When you say tenacity, that was that was great. I sent a thank you letter to uh, Avery Brundage, mentioned the picture, and he responded very kindly. And he said, not only did Jim train, but he almost overdid it on occasion because he had had no schooling and all the, all the intricacies of the decathlon events. He just uh, practiced really hard as much as possible without any coaching. So you did get corroboration right there from a teammate uh, that he was a hard worker, uh, a trainer, and, and uh, had no hammock on that boat, apparently. Exactly. In terms of the racism, when you mentioned a teammate, another teammate I was blessed to interview was uh, Abel Kiviat, who um, in my interview kept stressing that he was Hebrew. He was, he was in his late 90s, and he was repeating himself from time to time, and he kept saying, I'm Hebrew. And I showed him the record book from 1912, and I said, Abel, you keep saying you're Hebrew. How can you say that when you uh, ran for the Irish American Athletic Club? And he smiled, and he said, back in the early 1900s, if you were a world-class athlete in the New York City area, you ran for the New York Athletic Club if you were from the right side of the tracks. But if you were a minority or poor, you ran for the Irish American Athletic Club. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, Marcus, because on the voyage over where the athletes all got first-class accommodations, and as they're walking onto the ship and given their keys to their rooms, Jim and Abel were not given keys to any room. They were told to sleep in the steerage compartment of the, uh, of the basement of the ship. And, and again, that was, that, those were the times, and that was... Uh, part of the challenge that Jim Thorpe encountered. And I thought it was a story that needed to be told. Well, we are going to get into the accomplishments on uh, the ball field, uh, at the Olympics, just the records that Jim Thorpe set. Before we do, though, you actually got more time for an interview with the President of the United States than you did from, uh, to re remind me of his name, the, the multimillionaire? Avery Brundage. Yeah, you got more yeah. time. You got more time with the president. It was ab absolutely the most amazing experience, Marcus. He, uh, I rang his doorbell at, at his office in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I rang the doorbell, and a loudspeaker it seemed to come from heaven. It said, "State your business," and I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I could hear these footsteps coming down a wooden staircase, and it was uh, General Schultz, a four-star general, and he was President Eisenhower's assistant. This was after, uh, after President Eisenhower's presidency. This was in the year 1967, and he escorted me up the stairs, and sitting behind his desk was President Eisenhower, with his bifocals on, reading, I could tell it was a dissertation. It was on the campus of Gettysburg College. He immediately got up from behind the desk. I noticed he was reaching for his back pocket as he was walking toward me. And what he was doing, he, he pulled out his wallet because he saw on the side of my tape recorder a hand-lettered sign saying Gettysburg. And he said, very kindly, very grandfatherly, said, I don't approve of hitchhiking. Here's $20 if you promise not to hitchhike. So I told a white lie. I didn't want to take his money. I said, Mr. President, I promise not to hitchhike. I do have money, which I didn't. <laughs> but he that made him feel better. And he said, have a seat. And I sat in one of his rocking chairs, and he sat in the other. And we had the most wonderful conversation. You can hear the squeaking of his rocking chair as he's talking about a game that took place 55 years before that, and he could remember every play. But what got him really interested in recounting the game 
was when I read a newspaper article, and the exact words I can remember said, Ike Eisenhower's career ended the day he tried to tackle Jim Thorpe. And all of a sudden, this very well-modulated, kindly, grandfatherly voice gets very strident, and the the, uh, rocking chair comes to a screeching halt. (laughs) He said three words, each one louder than the previous one, no, no, no. And then it was incredible, Marcus. He went to recount every, virtually every key play of a game that happened 55 years before. (laughs) And what, what really happened was that he couldn't catch Jim Thorpe. In frustration, he said to his backfield pal, Charles Benedict, he remembered his name and everything. He said, on the next play, let's hit him the high-low. I'll hit him high, and you hit him low, and we'll knock him out of the game. Well, Jim stopped, came around running toward them around end again. They lowered their heads with, of course, the thin leather helmets. And Jim saw what was happening, stopped on a dime. President Eisenhower and, and Charles Benedict, banged heads together, were kind of groggy, and the coach said, I'm going to take you out. And Eisenhower said, please don't, because um, back then there wasn't substitution regular allowed. It had to be every every quarter. So the coach says, no, well, I'll put you in the next quarter. And, and Eisenhower, President Eisenhower said by the time the next quarter rolled around, the game was out of, out of control, and so he didn't get to play again. But that was uh, to, to take – But to sell a story, what I found is a lot of writers will exaggerate and and just completely make up stories if they think it will sell. And uh, I think when when I decided to write the biography, I wrote 20 letters and I only got one response. I wrote to the top 20 sports historians in the United States, in my opinion, obviously, and one wrote back, this uh, was the most insightful inspiration that I received. And it was Colonel Alexander Wayan who actually played against Jim Thorpe. He played on the West Point team. He said, in the interest of, here's what his letter said, October 24th, 1967, in the interest of scholarship, you will no doubt carefully analyze all stories that come to your attention. Some ridiculous stories concerning Thorpe have been published in magazines and books and have been solemnly repeated by reliable writers such as Grantland Rice and Arthur Daly. I repeat, watch carefully what you write, because more lies have been written about Jim Thorpe than about any player in football history. And I looked up Grantland Rice and Arthur Daly and found that they were Pulitzer Prize winners. What is it that would drive people to, well, I guess you explained already, to, to make the story more colorful, you embellish yes, it? Sell. Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's just amazing the stories that were made up. And, and again, I was blessed to live at a time and have parents who allowed me to, if you have some young listeners, hitchhiking was not as dangerous back in the 60s as it is today. My mom and dad uh, allowed me to, uh, to take off with a tape recorder. I didn't know how to write real well, and, uh, but I knew how to push a record button. And I knew that if the story was ever going to be told, that it had to be done immediately. Uh, how old and, were you uh, when you went out on this quest? Uh, 20 years old. And that's uh, so you were 20 when you met the uh, f- former President Eisenhower? Yes. Uh, and, 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 you, and those recordings, you've kept them all those years? They're in a safe place, yes. I hope. Yes, I still have the recordings. Burt Lancaster was another person I interviewed, the, the guard at MGM. Uh, said if I didn't leave, he would have me arrested. And I said I'd hitchhiked 3,000 miles from Syracuse to Hollywood to interview Burt Lancaster, who played Jim Thorpe in the movie. And I said it would just be unconscionable to do this research without talking to him. And I said, I'll tell you, if you will call his secretary, and I will literally say one sentence to her, and if she tells me to hit the road, I said, you won't see me any get anymore. And he said, all right, if that'll get rid of you. I'll never forget her name, Mrs. Callahan. She said, I, I said, I've hitchhiked 3,000 miles. I'm writing my uh, uh, history dissertation on Jim Thorpe. And uh, it would be unconscionable not to talk to uh, Mr. Lancaster. She said, hold on. And, and I've thought about this many times, Marcus. She could have gone gotten a cup of coffee or she could have done something else, but she came back on and her exact words were, I don't believe it. He said, come right up. So I handed the phone to, <laughs> I handed the, phone to the guard and I uh, walked up the stairs. 
was escorted into Mr. Lancaster's office, and in his office were Telly Savalas, Shelley Winters, and Ossie Davis. They were working on a film called The Scalp Hunters. I did not get the other gentleman's name, but he he looked like he was ready for a heart attack. He, he was chomping on a cigar and looking at his watch. I have a feeling he was the producer, and he's thinking, oh, no, another interruption. we gotta, we got to get on schedule. Everybody was very cordial, the, the three actor, two actors and the actress I mentioned. Bert asked for some privacy, and they left. And I'll never forget this. He leaned out of his door and said to it impressed me as a young person that he used the word please. He said, please hold all of my calls. And then he closed this big oak door. And he didn't need to do it, but he turned the big deadbolt lock on it, which was very loud and I think gave the, uh, gave the idea that he did not want to be disturbed because he wanted to talk about his hero. And he, he told me some incredibly insightful things as well as a few comments that he said, uh, I will trust you not to reveal what I'm telling you until after I die. The most spectacular one that, I, that I'm thinking of right now is he said that uh, Warner Brothers did not want to do a movie on Jim Thorpe with Jim Thorpe on the set. They, he said Hollywood, the, the screenwriter, uh, had a three-page Reader's Digest condensation of Jim's life, and basically the, the movie is 90% made up. So he uh, he didn't want to uh, the, the Warner Brothers didn't want to impede that to get the movie done and to get it done the way they wanted. So Burt Lancaster told me he said that he called Jim Thorpe uh, and he hired him on his own. He called Jim and he said, Jim, my name's Burt Lancaster. I've been hired to play you in the movie. He said, I know I'm not as good looking as you, but I'll do the best I can. But can I? Can I hire you to be my technical advisor? And, of course, Jim agreed. And throughout the filming, Bert would stop the production, and there'd be a drop-kicking scene, for example, and he'd have Jim come out onto the field and very respectful and, and very um, insightful as well, asked how he held the ball. And uh, so that's that was my great experience with, uh, with Bert Lancaster. Well, you have uh, pounded pavement and crisscrossed the country talking to people who knew him personally. Did you find anybody who had anything to say in any way that was disparaging of this athlete? Because apparently there has been some uh, misrepresentation. And I'm much, Did you bump into anybody who was a naysayer? I did not, but that's a great point that you raised, Marcus, because it's been written that he died destitute. I think when someone there's there's a stereotype when someone lives in a trailer people uh, people think that they're that they're not up to par let's put it that way again I was blessed the only person his his widow ever did an interview with on his life was me she showed me all of his private papers allowed me to copy them to this day they have not been open to the public to read but I I just I got to talk to his contemporaries, and I got to see his private papers, and and it was just uh, just an amazing blessing that I that I did get to have those uh, advantages. The misrepresentation of him, I think a, a great interview I had was uh, with Paulette Blanchard, who was the great granddaughter of Cecilia Blanchard, who along with Jim Thorpe founded the. American Indian Center in Hollywood. And, and these are parts of the stories that don't come out that Jim, uh, before the, the age of, of uh, agents and so forth, got literally thousands, and this is all documented, of Native Americans jobs in Hollywood during the Depression. And, and these are, when you say, did I find any naysayers? No, no but I uncovered stories from, from eyewitnesses of events that no one has ever written about before. The the Jim Thorpe story has, has always been about athleticism, um, founding the National Football League, being the greatest football player, uh, being the greatest track and field athlete, being a major league baseball player. But the personal side of him has not come out. Cecilia Blanchard, the lady I just mentioned, she had a term that she said, all the Native Americans called Jim Thorpe by this name. And I said, what was that? And she said, it's called Aka Pomata. 
and she said that's Sack and Fox for caregiver. But he, um, again, he would he would travel across the country in his in his uh, Ford Model A, and he'd have his hunting dogs in the back seat. This this was the life that he did. He worked for Indian rights. He got jobs for people. This is the type of thing that's never never been brought out before, and I'm excited to say is uh, will be brought out in this upcoming movie that um, um, Abraham Taylor. Uh, I'm, I'm mentioning his name with with Josh Aker, Chris Nielsen, and Israel Curtis. They're all BYU grads, and and they're working with uh, Native American leaders. Nedra Darling, Chris Taylor, and the late Rick Hill. And it's important that I mention those names because, Marcus, I've never worked in all my years in public relations, mainly as my work. Uh, I've never met or worked with a group who epitomized the concept of teamwork more than these people. And, and the movie they're working on is so transcendent of a sports movie. It's going to delve into the boarding school issues and the, the treatment of the Native Americans in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I just can't say enough about these individuals. I probably in perspective over the last 40 odd years, a year does not go by when I'm not approached by a movie maker wanting to do a story on Jim Thorpe. The, the, the work that the group that I just mentioned have come up with, um, they understood the background of what Jim Thorpe faced more than anyone I've ever met in my life, and I'm honored to work with them. Well, part of what we want to do with you today is to get to know the real Jim Thorpe, like those movie makers are trying to do, too. We're going to have to take a quick little break here, Bob, and then come right back to you. I, I want to get into the mismatched shoes business. I want to get a, a real sense for the breadth of his capacity as an athlete across so many different events, so many different types of sports. Uh, just remarkable what he was able to do. And uh, So stick with us, and we'll be right back to Constant Wonder. We're visiting with Bob Wheeler. He is author of Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. I'm Marcus Smith. This is Constant Wonder. We're visiting with Bob Wheeler right now about the life and the legacy of Jim Thorpe. Wheeler is author of Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. So, uh, Bob, we could talk about decathlon. We could talk about pentathlon. We could, we've already talked about football. Just in football alone, he established records uh, for yardage. They're just as astonishing, really. He did, and all the while being the first president unanimously elected, unsalaried, I might mention, of the National Football League. Also, talk about an unknown story. He integrated the National Football League before it was officially segregated and then later integrated. But a, a player by the name of Henry McDonald was, was not going to be allowed to play because he was black. And, and this was in 1918, two years before the official league started, but they were still playing lots of professional football all over the country. He, uh, he said that uh, Henry was playing, and his contemporaries with whom I, was inter I got to interview said that Jim Thorpe's word was law, and, and he allowed um, Henry McDonald to play, and I got to talk to Henry McDonald, and, and he verified that story. So, again, these are the, the human qualities that, that don't come out, but I love how you mentioned the stolen shoes because what's amazing, Marcus, is that I run into young people in their 20s nowadays because this has been all over the Internet about the stolen shoes. To see the look in their eyes and, and their expressions, to know that, you know, life during the pandemic now, which, again, uh, there was a, the Spanish flu in the 20s that Jim Thorpe uh, worked through, and, and then later the Depression, as we said. But these young people are, love the story of the stolen shoes. And, and if I'm speaking before a group, invariably I will have an older person get very emotional during the Q&A, tell stories of how their parents sacrificed and how they would show up for, for sporting events without the proper equipment, and they would look over and see the Nike swooshes on the very expensive outfits that their competitors were were, uh, were wearing, and they would tell me. And in fact, one uh, uh, John Edwards, uh, uh, 
Native American from Oklahoma. I took some kids to play one time, and they didn't have any shoes at all to compete. So this, the story of the shoes is incredible, That, um, and I'm glad you brought that up, because prior to the 1,500-meter race, race, which was the final event of the decathlon, which, which Jim needed to win. Um, and you're putting us back in 1912 in Sweden, right? 1912, right, in Stockholm, Sweden. And he reaches, he's got a few minutes, literally five minutes before the race, and he's out on the field, and he's uh, sitting down on the field and going to put his socks and shoes on, and someone, he opens up his, his bag, and someone still had stolen his shoes. What he did next is just amazing. He uh, raced back into the locker room and and asked any of his teammates, my shoes are gone. Has anybody seen them or does anyone have an extra pair of shoes that I could borrow? And they just ignored him. So he, he saw one of the trash, the trash can in the locker room and he, he got a shoe out of it. It didn't fit him. It was too small, but he grabbed it anyway, ran out onto the field, took one of those big burn barrels, those big metal burn barrels. Now he's got like two minutes before the start of the race. He dumps it out on the field, turns it upside down. There's another shoe, a right shoe uh, that was that was uh, too big. So he, he crams his one the left foot into the small shoe and, and put extra socks on the right and, and got to the start line just in, in time, literally with seconds to spare. Won the gold medal. It's just, uh, I think that one story just shows a lot about what he was made of. And, and you know, getting into the, uh, after the Olympics, if it's all right, if I, if I go into, uh, after he got the gold medals for the decathlon and pentathlon, the king, you, you, I'm sure you've heard this story as well. It's, it's inscribed on his, his mausoleum, uh, the king of Sweden, very emotionally shook Jim's hand and said, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was true then. And I, I think with, with, uh, I think given his versatility, I think it would have to be true today as well. But in very short order, there was scandal because those medals were rescinded. And then, yeah. and your life work in large measure has been working up to that point in 1982, 83, when uh, uh, the reversal came. Uh, that is just uh, an astonishing story. We don't need to get into all the particulars, but uh, the, the, the basic reason was that he was accused of not being an amateur because he had been paid a paltry sum for a couple of games. Uh, and uh, what was the offense, really? Right. I'll try to condense it for you because it is it is an amazingly convoluted and deceitful story. The Olympics in 1912 were, as you said, were only for amateur athletes. And before the Olympics, Jim was a student at the Carlisle Indian School. And with two teammates, Joe Libby and Jesse Youngdeer, I got to speak with Joe before, uh, during the summer in 1909, uh, they got permission or actually they were sent to play summer baseball in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina to keep in shape for the upcoming football season. Pop called a friend of his, Charlie Clancy, who managed the team down in Rocky Mount, and uh, it was all set up. And this is part of the, they called it the outing system at the Carlisle Indian School, where the slogan was, kill the Indian, save the man. And, and that was not brought out in the Burt Lancaster movie. That was that was grossly sugar-coated to say something to the effect of all men are created equal, which of course was not true. But the theory was, was to, and, and the actual happening was to take the Indian students uh, from the reservations and uh, burn their clothes in front of them, uh, shave their heads, dress them in white man's clothing, and give them white man's names. Uh, I interviewed one one uh, a, a friend of Jim's whose name was uh, George Washington. So obviously that these these kids were not allowed to have their own name and uh, were trying to be stripped of their heritage. But in any event, Jim Jim is down in Rocky Mount. It's called the outing system. They were paid two dollars a game. I'm glad you mentioned that, Marcus, because that money did not go into Jim's pocket. It was sent back to the school for the instructions and the rules of the outing system. Then, as, as 
you had said Jim went on to win the two gold medals at the Olympics. This is after playing the summer baseball. Six months later, he was stripped of these medals when it was reported that he had played summer baseball and gotten paid. And what hasn't come out is that his letter of confession was scripted by Moses Friedman, the superintendent of the school, and Pop Warner. They hired someone to write a letter of confession, and I have uh, reports from eyewitnesses. He forced, Pop Warner forced Jim to sign this letter of confession that he was paid to play summer baseball. He was not given a chance. Jim wasn't given a chance to defend himself. Pop Warner and James Sullivan met in Sullivan's office in New York City and decided this is what we have to do to protect our names and we'll basically throw Jim Thorpe under the bus. Who who and, had it uh, out? Who had something against Jim Thorpe that this was even brought forward in the first place? I mean, to 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 be this heroic athlete, medal winner at the Olympics, and six months later somebody is trying to dig up dirt to try to sabotage it? No, what ha- that's a great question. What happened is a reporter was doing a hot stove league, league story the winter of 1912 uh, and January of 1913, and he was in Charlie Clancy's office, and he's talking on the up from the other side of the desk. Charlie's behind his desk, and the reporter looks over Charlie's head, and he sees a picture on the wall of men on horseback who had gone, who were on a hunting trip, and this is after the Olympics, and the reporter couldn't believe his eyes. He said, that looks like Jim Thorpe on a hunting expedition with you. And and the manager said, yes, it was. So he writes this story in January of 2013 that Jim Thorpe played summer baseball down in uh, Rocky Mount, North Carolina. So it made the front page of the, of the New York Times because this meant he was not an amateur athlete. So in, in quick damage control, Pop Warner Moses Friedman and James Sullivan got together and decided that what they needed to do. The horrific true story of that is that Sullivan was was on the voyage over to the Olympics. He he knew about it was Marcus was a very common thing among the elite wealthy white athletes of the day. Um, The rosters of the uh, Ivy League football teams, uh, which were the top teams in the country back then. Uh, are loaded with summer jobs in the Catskills where they falsified their record by saying, oh, um, I'm working in the kitchen in the Catskills, when in reality they were playing uh, in a summer baseball league and were getting paid to play baseball. But they changed their names and they were never caught. And there's some very, very famous people who did that. But Jim Thorpe, acting, as I said, at at his coach's order, used his own name. It broke Charlie Clancy's heart. His daughter said he never recovered from the sadness that he felt he was responsible for for what happened to Jim Thorpe, which, of course, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. One of the most remarkable turns in this uh, has to do with uh, uh, the verbiage in the uh, rules of the game. Rule number, I don't know, 13, I'm going to make oh, that up. 13, right. Is You're it 13? Good. Rule number 13. <laughs> uh, yes, no, that's right. Are you the one who discovered that clause, that stipulation? Because this has to do with the rules of the Olympiad, that if somebody's going yeah. to re- explain that to us, that's fascinating. Boy, you really know your history. That That is so wonderful. Um, my incredible wife, uh, Dr. Florence Ridlon, she, she just had this feeling that there was a rule from the 1912 Olympics that was not adhered to by the Olympic officials. So we contacted the International Olympic Committee. Oh, there's no such rules. Time and time again, we have it in writing, no rules. Well, we figured that there had to be rules because this was the first of the modern Olympics that was really all out with production and and ceremony, and it was just a beautiful production. So she was in the Library of Congress she tells the story much better and and she's probably told it a thousand times and and she gets emotional every time she says it because it, it well when i tell you the punchline you'll understand but she's going through the card catalog before computers and everything went through the entire sporting section of the library of congress they were so the uh, dave kelly the head of the of the uh, sports section was so impressed with her as you said tenacity he said, would you like a stack pass? And so she goes into where the super 
rare original documents are held. And he said that if you put all of the metal bookshelves side to side, they would stretch 55 miles. That's how many they have in the Library of Congress. And she spent a long time looking through these records, found nothing, found records, found rules for all the Olympics except for 1912. So she was leaving. This was the end of her journey and her effort. And something prompted her, something inspired her to turn around. And she walked back into behind and reached behind one of the metal stacks onto the floor. And with her fingers, she felt some uh, a thin group of papers, wasn't a book. And she pulled it out and it was a pamphlet. And it was the 1913, 1912 rules and regulations for the 1912 Olympics, the Swedish Olympic rule book that basically said objections to the qualifications of a competitor must be made before the lapse of 30 days from the distribution of prizes. And so they had broken their own rule because they did not divest him of his medals until six months later. So we went to William Simon who was the Secretary of the Treasury and also President of the United States Olympic Committee. And Edward Bennett Williams, a famous lawyer who owned the Redskins at the time and the Orioles. And these two gentlemen uh, gave us free access pro bono from their legal teams. Uh, with that information, uh, they said that uh, you're going to, in a court of law, you're going to win the case. So then we went to, to the head of the U.S. delegation to the uh, IOC, which was Julian Roosevelt, and I was optimistic with that because he was a grandnephew of Teddy Roosevelt, one of my heroes in American history, and he couldn't have been more intransigent. He just he turned us down flatly and, and was very rude about it. He said to my wife at one time, he said to Flo, why did Jim Thorpe have to work? Why did he have to earn money? He, he didn't ever have to work. He, he won a gold medal in yachting. And he grew up on Oyster Bay, and he just didn't have – it wasn't that he was nasty or evil or anything. He just didn't comprehend. And at the time, it was interesting, uh, Flo said to him, well, let me give you the example of the current decathlon champion, Bruce Jenner, whose wife works two jobs so that he has time to train. Why does she have to work, he said. And then he called for the, uh, the waiter to have the check, and that was the end of our conversation. But <laughs> with – with the rule of the 30-day rule, William Simon uh, went to uh, the International Olympic Committee and got the gold medals restored. And, and in the process, by the way, you'd get a kick out of this. The, uh, Julian Roosevelt was interviewed by the Washington Press, and this is one of my all-time favorite quotations. He said, "He said they could get." Uh, the reporter said that Bob and Flo have three and a half million signatures on a congressional resolution. And he said, that won't matter. He says they could get Arafat and the president of the United States to sign their petition, and it won't do any good. But with, <laughs> with that rule and with William Simons, as Sports Illustrated called him, the consummate arm twister, they were, Jack McCallum, the writer, was being facetious because he didn't twist anyone's arm. He, he literally just touched President Sam Ranch's elbow, the president of the International Olympic Committee, before their next annual meeting. And he said, why don't you do the right thing? Why don't you restore the medals? It's, it's the right thing to do. And the International Olympic Committee will get some positive publicity out of it. Because if you don't, you've never heard of this couple, but, but they've got a, a legal team that, um, that you're going to lose in a court of law. And even if you win, which you won't win, but even if you win, you will lose in the court of public opinion. So in 1983, before the meeting started, President Samran said, this is what we're going to do. And Julian Roosevelt, knowing what was going to happen, had handwritten uh, a letter on his own private stationery saying that he was the one who was going to ask for Jim Thorpe's gold medals to be restored. And he ended up having to tear up that, that note because uh, President Samran beat him to it. But then they, uh, they refused to list his name as the champion in the record book. And, and that's what I'm working on today. There's so much to this story, Bob. Uh, we don't have time to cover it all, but I want to hear about Bright Path Strong and what's up with that. I know you're very involved. That that would be so incredible if your listeners would uh, go on to brightpathstrong.com. Jim Thorpe's second fox name is Wathohuk, which is translated means Bright Path. But Bright Path Strong is an organization 
and our goal is to honor the legacy of Jim by elevating American Indian voices that they may be heard by the general population and, and we're trying to encourage positive social actions and the stresses on stories of resilience and strength and perseverance and hope, which are some of the stories that, that I mentioned today. But the first initiative of Bright Pass Strong is the full reinstatement of Jim Thorpe's Olympic honors. They're launching a uh, second initiative and that's to help bring drinking water to some of the reservations, which still have no access to clean water. And and this is the part that you love history, Marcus. I think you love their calling it the Acapamata movement, caregiver in honor of the name of Jim Thorpe. As I mentioned earlier, he was given that name by the Indian nation whose members he helped uh, during the find uh, jobs during the Depression. Brightpathstrong.com. There's another website, brightpathmovie.com. Martin Sensmeyer, I had not mentioned this, from the Magnificent Seven and Westworld and the Wind River. He's a Native American actor from Alaska, and he's going to be playing Jim Thorpe. And uh, Angelina Jolie and Todd Black are two of the producers, along with Abraham Taylor. Bob Wheeler, uh, such a pleasure to hear from you and to uh, give you enough time to to give us a small sample of what you offer in your book, uh, Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. Bob, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Marcus. If you're ever driving through the coal country of Pennsylvania, there's a good chance you could stumble on the town with a curious name of Jim Thorpe. And you'd be right to suspect that there's a connection here. How did Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania get its name. That story coming up when Constant Wonder returns in a moment. Thanks for joining with us today for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. And I'm Eric Scholzka. We're talking about Jim Thorpe this hour, and we spent most of the hour talking about Jim Thorpe the man. But the truth is, there is another Jim Thorpe out there. Jim Thorpe the town. You may be aware of this. You can check it on Google Maps. It's in Pennsylvania. Now, Jim Thorpe died in California, as I understand. He lived in Oklahoma. At least that's where he was raised. Why was he buried in Pennsylvania? To find out, we have Jack Sterling on the line. He is a local historian in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Jack, welcome to Constant Wonder. Hi. Nice to be here. All right, Jack, why is Jim Thorpe buried in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania? Oh, boy, that's a story. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, when he died, uh, this is as I understand it, uh, he was supposed to be buried on in his family plot in Oklahoma, and the state was going to put up a, you know, a suitable monument for somebody of all the things he achieved. At the last minute... I'm not sure if it was the legislature. I think it was the legislature that vetoed it. It might have been the governor. No, it was the, the governor vetoed the bill. He said for fiscal reasons, yeah. but they were okay. going to do a memorial for him. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there was a lot of uh, anti-Native American sentiment, uh, even back in the 1950s. Right. Well, he was basically going to be buried in a very plain grave because there was not a lot of money in the family. But his widow looked around, shopped around, as some will say, and uh, looking for a place that was willing to do something to honor him. We had a local newsman here, Joe Boyle, in town, uh, owned and operated, published the local newspaper, uh, the Jim Thorpe Times News. And he was also a big sports fan, and he knew all about Jim Thorpe from uh, that. And uh, he went down to Philadelphia, and he met with Jim Thorpe's widow, and uh, they struck a deal. Uh, she had his body brought here to be buried, and uh, the town chipped in. Uh, I believe it was a five-nickel-a-week program uh, uh, to help bring industry and uh, other things into this town, which was still hurting. Uh, the Depression you know, of the 1930s lasted here into the 19. 19- 50s and even the 1960s mm, right it was uh, you know we were we had lost the coal we had lost railroads right and uh so it was tough the and rust was, the rust belt before it was even that rusty right yeah uh and this is supposed to help revitalize things so uh so you renamed the was, town what was the town called before mock chunk m-a-u-c-h 
Mock. Chunk. Okay, which is itself one of the most unusual names ever. You've told me that it's an Indian name. Tell us what you know about that. Like I say, uh, we went from one Indian name to another. Uh, The name of an Indian to an Indian phrase, meaning Bear Mountain. And it was named after a mountain in the area that looked like a bear, I understand. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, from a certain vantage point, uh, there's a hump of a mountain across the river from the town. And uh, depending on how you look at it, it could appear to be. Well, uh, they came up with this deal that he would be buried here and uh, under a proper mausoleum and uh, a nice big granite uh, stone. And uh, there's a special park just for him. And in recent years, we've added several statues of him in his various uh, uh, pursuits, uh, football, and uh, I'm not sure what else, but I know there's two, and I think they're getting ready to put up a third one over there. And there is, uh, I would assume that it generates some tourist traffic. You guys have an event once a year, right? Yeah, we have a celebration of his birthday, and I believe that's in June. And, uh, yeah, a lot of his family members come here. In fact, one of his grandsons, John Thorpe, lives in nearby Weatherly. Uh, and I understand there was some controversy that was just only recently laid to rest, so to speak. Yeah, uh, some of his family wanted to take him back to Oklahoma. Some of his family wanted him to stay here where he was resting in peace. And uh, yeah, there was lawsuits and all kinds of things. Uh, it actually but, went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, in the end, it was decided that he would stay here. Uh, and one of the one of the members of the family that was pursuing this the most, I think that was Jack Thorpe, uh, died in the midst of it. Oh, I see. So, so that it... probably hurt that movement some, but there's still other family members, and then the tribe, the Sac and Fox tribe that he belonged to were pushing for it too right. so there was that's where a lot of the money for the lawsuits we had a local lawyer here who uh worked for the town pro bono and uh did a lot of, you know did a lot to help keep things here yeah yeah uh, yeah but uh, i think it all worked out fairly good because he, he it's a beautiful uh place that he's buried at well just to have a town named after you is a whole lot better than uh, the obscurity yeah. he was facing he's never here the closest he might have been was about 10 miles away in palmerton mm-hmm. during his uh, uh baseball career i think that was and of course he was you know in the carlisle indian school in the center of the state oh in pennsylvania or, uh, yeah oh here. okay so at least there's a pennsylvania connection here Oh, yeah, yeah, oh. definitely. Yeah. Uh, he spent several years, and that's where he's playing uh, football. And I believe it was Pop Warner who uh, coached him oh, in right. his formative years. I hope I have that name right. Well, Pop because, Warner would have been a, a formative figure in football, so that's a. Uh, yeah. Sounds, this is all off right. the top of my head, so yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. hold me to it. But, uh, well,. We, uh, I wish we had more time. I, I might come back later and talk to you a little about the history of your town because it's kind of a really cool slice of Americana you have there. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I was just but, downtown today, and it's a Wednesday, and it was so busy, and people just snapping photos, and the foliage is out right now. Oh, right, right. Oh, that's a big draw here. Uh, yeah. Of course, the coronavirus has uh, hurt some of that. Well, but, uh, as long as you stay outside and distant, you're okay. Yeah, and a lot of people wearing masks and yeah. everything, but uh, yeah, we have great restaurants, we have great hotels and everything here in town, which wasn't the case when Jim Thorpe was brought here. The town was really on the skids, but it's perked up in the last uh, 30, 40 years. Well, it seems to have uh, helped everyone out, I guess, huh? Getting, yeah, a little, yeah, getting yourself part. on the map. It's, well, yeah, it's a nice town, nice people. All right. And 
Well, Jack uh, Sterling, local historian in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Jack, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Eric Schultzka pursuing that story about Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Schultzka, of course, one of our producers here on the show. I'm Marcus Smith. Well, we have had a pretty serious conversation today about Jim Thorpe, uh, very inspiring stories, but what he had to put up with, social and racial nonsense and discrimination coming his way in life. Uh, those are those are fascinating, really big stories, but I couldn't help but be interested also in our guest, Robert Wheeler. He was fascinating in his own right. Uh, you know, hitchhiking around the country as a 20-year-old, meeting Dwight Eisenhower, Burt Lancaster, and all those other people who became sources as he was researching Jim Thorpe's life. The providential discovery of those rules from 1912, the medals restored to Thorpe, and then all these years later, Robert Wheeler is still at it, trying to get Thorpe's name restored to the record book the way it's supposed to be. It's kind of like the blending of great personalities and great stories uh, that, that make our work here on the show so rewarding for us, and I hope for you too. We're going to round out this hour with a, something very short, uh, and it's on a much lighter note. We don't get down to the bottom of everything on this show. Sometimes we leave questions unanswered. You may have noticed that. And in this case, it's a question that will remain unanswered about an ingredient for homemade lipstick. The color in the lipstick, it might be inorganic like rust. It, it may be organic like bug juice. Well, just, just give this a listen. You know, you can actually make a pretty decent lipstick at home. All it takes is uh, a few different types of oils and wax. And then the, the interesting part is what makes it red? And, and there you've got interesting natural options, one of which is rust. So, you know, the, the exact same rust that you would find on a rusty nail. I would never recommend that you actually use that rust. You can, you can buy, um, you know, cosmetic safe rust on Amazon um, or... Some places actually use ground up cochineal bugs, which are these, these sort of small bugs that live on prickly pear plants and produce this intense red color. And those can be in lipsticks too. Who, who retrieves little bugs off of prickly pears? <laughs> uh, that is a question I think better left to the imagination. George Zidane is a popular YouTuber. He's author of Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and on Us. And presumably, lipstick fits in the latter category. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.